Hey, Bettys. Welcome to the Better Podcast. It's your host, Dr. Stephanie. It is geeky magic time where I step away from the interviews and just talk to you. It's just going to be me and you today. And these episodes, I'm going to bring you personal insights, frequently asked questions, topic du jour in a more condensed, quick, and actionable way. I go hard on the geek, wrap it up with sprinkles and magic for you to do and be better. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. All right, ladies and germs, welcome to Geeky Magic. Today, we are going to follow our... Last week, we talked about thyroid metabolism and optimization, and I wanted to follow up this week, sort of a little one-two punch. So, you know, week one, thyroid, week two, we're going to talk about growth hormone. And I wanted to talk about these in tandem because they are so closely overlapping. Uh, When we first you know, look at it, um, they, they almost look like identical systems. So Let's talk a little bit about what growth hormone is. It is, um, there is a regulatory access to it. So growth hormone is synthesized, secreted by the anterior uh, pituitary. And synthesis and secretion of pituitary uh, growth hormone is under the control of the hypothalamus. So we always have this hypothalamic pituitary dance, um, and that's regulated via releasing and inhibitory hormones. And once uh, growth hormone is released, it will induce a a hepatic synthesis of um, something called insulin-like growth factor. So the liver will produce IGF-1, and this is actually used as a proxy for growth hormone. Now, you'll learn today that growth hormone um, is is released while we sleep. And so it's kind of hard to measure. So uh, what we can measure IGF-1 uh, as a proxy for, uh, for growth hormone. And of course, once growth hormone uh, is released into the bloodstream, as I mentioned, um, it's going to also act on a ton of tissue. So it's going to act on your ligaments, your bones, your muscle, all to increase metabolism. And it, it might sound very similar to your thyroid hormone, and they really do work in parallel. So growth hormone, like thyroid hormone, will help the cells take substrate and move them into, uh, into the select cells, whether it's, you know, tendons, ligaments, bone, et cetera, to help them grow or to help them repair. Um, And one of the most important 
um, sort of growth promoting effects, if you will, is on the cartilage and on the bone. And this happens, of course, in cooperation with growth hormones, bestie thyroid. And this is really important for linear growth, of course, in our children when they're growing up. But it's also really important for adults as we age, because of course, our bones, there is a natural turnover that happens with bones. We have osteoclastic and osteoblastic activity. I know I've mentioned these two many times um, in the pod before, but just as a brief uh, a brief pause here, what the osteoblastic or osteoblasts, which are cells that promote bone growth, they are anabolic in nature. Osteoclasts are catabolic in nature, meaning they will break down. And so your bones are constantly remodeling themselves and they will do so under the influence of thyroid hormone and growth hormone. So I wanted to talk about um, growth hormone today because there are things that we can do as women and as men as well that can really help to directionally, naturally increase growth hormone in some cases like 500%, 1000%. And even though it's a short-lived increase, um, these can have really powerful effects on our metabolism to help repair metabolism and to help repair our tissues. And we can't really have a conversation around growth hormone without talking about cardiovascular disease. And while on the surface that might not necessarily seem um, related to each other, what we notice in terms of sexual dimorphisms between men and women is that women, we have a longer life, you know, we have a longer lifespan, longer mean lifespan um, than men. And, you know, I was, I was talking to uh, my partner Giovanni the other day, and I can't remember what I said. And I was like, we're going to live, you know, we're going to live until 120. And he's like, well, you're probably going to live until 120. I'm probably going to die at hundred, you know, <laughs> because we know that there's this phase, you know, there's this sort of, uh, there's this increase in lifespan um, for women. And, you know, I think that there's a, there's a phase shift in terms of when women, the onset of cardiovascular disease hits women. It's usually later than it might in men. And there's a couple of different, a uh, couple of different, uh, theories around why that is. One might be that we have, uh, less iron through, you know, 40 years of menstruation. We're essentially making a blood donation every month. Um, of course, if you have been pregnant, uh, and you have developed, uh, a placenta, of course, men don't have these other organs that develop, um, through life. And, um, when we think about, uh, the optimization of our system, and this is, you know, why you've, you've heard experts like, um, you know, I, I remember watching Dom D'Agostino on, um, I think it was Tom Bilyeu's, um, impact theory saying that he goes and gives blood every month, um, as a longevity strategy. So there's, there's almost like a different optimization strategy between men and women, but that's one of the things, if you have a, a man and you, you kind of want him to stick around a long time, you might encourage him to go and donate blood, um, once a month. So when we think about this from an evolutionary lens, of course, men have evolved to heal, um, from, from wounds, right? Quicker. Um, and women have evolved to protect our offspring. So generally for a longer period of time, women have lower inflammation and sort of a lower prothrombotic um, response. And women are not fighting, right? We're not fighting. We're not running after tigers or boars and bringing them back to the tribe because maybe we're pregnant, maybe we're menstruating, maybe we're taking care of 
our children. And again, just kind of continuing to explore this idea around the difference between cardiovascular disease. There's been a lot of questions around, well, is it like the set, you know, we've talked about some theories about iron and, you know, evolutionary roles. Um, there's been question around sex hormones. And this was a conversation that I brought up um, on my podcast with Dr. Um, Ethan Weiss, who is probably one of the foremost experts, I would say, um, on, um, this idea of sexual dimorphisms, um, in growth hormone. Um, and we talked about, you know, his initial, uh, uh hypothesis was that, for example, uh, hormones like estrogen and the estrogen receptor were the differential between why, um, men and women have this different, um, onset of cardiovascular disease. But it turns out that it's not our sex hormones, it's actually our livers. And this idea, um, and maybe it's not an idea, it's an actual thing, um, it turns out that mammals have a sexually dimorphic liver. And so if you take a liver out of a mammal, there's a set of genes that are expressed dramatically differently between men and women. So there's this like signature difference uh, between these genes that are turned on in the liver of females that are not in the liver of males. And so again, uh, as I mentioned before, when we were just talking about the synthesis of growth hormone, um, what when growth hormone is released, it will stimulate the uh, hepatic tissue to create insulin-like growth hormone. And it is in the um, differences between our between men and women, uh, this dimorphic pattern of growth hormone secretion. And there is a there is a couple of papers that um, have supported this. Um, it was uh, G, growth hormone was called the feminizing factor, um, and the differences in growth hormone secretion are really important. So in men. They have more uh, pulsatile uh, uh, releases of growth hormone and longer intervals between those pulses. Women have, it's, it's a bit more continuous and they have very short intervals. And so in rodents, you can actually um, inject growth hormone in a certain way and completely reverse the gene expression in in the liver to make the liver, you know, more masculine, let's say in a, in a female or more feminine, um, in a male. So I thought that that was really interesting. So growth hormone is a sexually dimorphic, uh, it has different, uh, a different pattern, uh, between men and women. And that is due to the liver and genes in the liver that are, you know, this feminizing factors we were talking about. And, um, and that may explain in some way, uh, cardi like the onset of cardiovascular disease. And we'll talk a little bit more about these cardiometabolic factors that can change in growth hormone in just a moment. But I wanted to give you a little bit of hardcore heavy science. And now uh, I actually want to maybe give you some clinical, lift some clinical heavyweight here to, to clue you in to maybe some behaviors uh, or physiology that may be suggestive of lower growth hormone. Now, again, you know, before I go into these, I, I do have to say um, the things that I'm about to describe can overlap with like a whole whack of conditions. So you always want to get lab testing done to rule out some of these other differentials. And a lot of these symptoms actually, um, 
either represent some type of cardiometabolic function, dysfunction that I uh, just mentioned, and are very like eerily similar to uh, low functioning thyroid. So to go over those again, uh, if you want to go back to the last Geeky Magic, uh, where we were talking about thyroid metabolism and thyroid optimization, you can dig deeper into them and why from through the lens of uh, thyroid dysfunction. Now, some clues that your growth hormone may be lower. Uh, first is lack of sleep, particularly early uh, in the evening. Um, now, I've heard uh, Matt Walker, who is a sleep scientist, you know, he said on multiple podcasts, you know, midnight means middle of the night and should probably correspond to roughly the middle of your sleep, your tot- your sleep in its totality. And my grandmother, my sito, my Lebanese grandmother, uh, she used to say uh, an hour before midnight is equivalent to two hours after midnight. Now, I don't know where she learned that logic. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I used to hear it all the time from her growing up, especially when I was a little child, like trying to resist going to sleep. I always didn't want to go to sleep in it was time. Um, but in terms of that early slow wave sleeper, we see growth hormone being secreted. This actually holds, um, some water. So if you are like not getting the total amount of sleep that you want, or if there's a phase shift in your sleep to later in the evening, uh, potentially there can be some attenuation of growth hormone. Another thing that we want to consider is lack of exercise. So not a regular uh, resistance training uh, regimen or excessive fatigue following exercise. So maybe uh, you're noticing that your muscles are not growing in the way that you would expect them to with the weights that you're lifting, or maybe they're not as defined as they should be given the amount of training um, that you're doing. Another question, you know, clinical clue that I would sort of be like looking around for is, uh, the type of eating pattern that someone has through the day. So usually there, you know, uh, if you are someone who grazes, uh, you know, through the day, like you just like a little picky of this little picky, like munching on this and munching on that. Uh, it's usually little processed carbs. Like you're taking a little bit of, you know, maybe you're taking a little bit of chips. Maybe you take a handful of almonds. You're just like kind of nibbling all day long. And or you have cravings for sugary foods or snacks, right? So this is also potentially indicative of a lowering growth hormone. Other things are like anxiety and depression, right? So feeling pressured by the current demands in your everyday life, um, feeling stressed out by them, uh, feeling sad by them more so than what you used to feel. And I talk about this in, in my book, The Betty Body. I sort of tongue in cheek, my attempt at humor, I was saying, you know, there's almost an inverse relationship between, you know, the amount of sun that's out and our anxiety anxiety in women. And it's as the sun lowers, as evening approaches, we often see this, uh, increase in anxiety. The mind is racing, you know, this like tired and wired, uh, predisposition where we are feeling maybe really anxious about the events that happened that day, or we are thinking about the future and we're anxious about what's happening tomorrow or next week or next month. 
Um, so these are some clues. Uh, if this is something that didn't necessarily used to be your, you know, part of your personality where you're feeling really anxious or you're feeling really sad, um, feeling really pressure and not pressured and not able to meet the demands of your everyday life, this in aggregate, you know, in aggregate with other, with other uh, clinical signs and lab markers might be also indicative of lower or lowering growth hormone. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Um, I mentioned fatigue, um, systemic pain and inflammation usually is like the sister to fatigue. So if you are feeling, you know, kind of chronically fatigued, it's unrelieved by naps. That's a, always a big kind of yellow flag for me. If someone, if we get their sleep hygiene the way that it should, and maybe they're taking some supplemental naps and that's not relieving the pain or relieving the fatigue. And then that systemic pain and inflammation, like what we see in fibromyalgia, uh, where it's like just global pain everywhere. Again, potentially low, uh, GH, um, increased abdominal obesity. This is, uh, for women in particular, this apple morphology where you have this ectopic fat distribution, um, which is to say that women are not really meant to, um, deposit fat centrally, like through the belly. This is more of a, uh, this kind of spare tire, uh, appearance is, is more, um, classic of a male fat, um, uh, deposition pattern. Um, usually for men, women, even though we don't like it, uh, we are supposed to deposit fat in our, you know, hips, bum, and lower uh, abdomen area. Um, so those are some kind of clinical, uh, you know, behavioral, uh, uh, clues. I would also say that you might also notice if you're someone who gets her labs done regularly, that maybe you're starting to, um, notice a shift, a negative shift in some of your cardiometabolic, um, uh, labs. So for example, maybe your blood pressure is beginning to increase. So hypertension. Now I know, um, I just got to put in my little here for optimal versus normal. A lot of, um, a lot of blood pressure is often quoted as 120 over 80. I think that's too high personally. Uh, and clinically, I actually prefer that number to be at least 110 and, uh, over 70. But for women such as myself, I am classically 100 over 100, you know, 100 over 60, 65. That's pretty consistent. Um, so 110 over 70, I think is, is the new norm that we should probably shift to. And then of course, depending on the, you know, the woman's age and her size, um, we might also shift that, um, lower. 
Other, other things that you might see becoming more deranged are increasing fasting glucose numbers, increasing in your fat, in, increase in your fasting insulin, and even your lipid, like your lipid markers might also be into wor- to worsen. So things like your LDL, uh, LDLC might be getting worse, your triglyceride elevation, um, also, like you might also see triglyceride elevation, and honestly, lipids are <laughs> they 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 are hours and hours and hours of uh, a subject onto itself. But as generally, if you're starting to see your lipid numbers get worse, we've talked a little bit about where growth hormone comes from, the sexually dimorphic liver, and how growth hormone is secreted differently in men and women, and some clinical, a clinical picture in terms of, uh, lowered growth hormone. Now I want to talk a little bit about a little bit. I want to double click on growth hormone in women. And as I mentioned, you know, growth hormone is released every night, you know, when we're asleep and it's released early, early in our sleep. So during this more, um, slow wave, um, sleep. So we need to have, uh, in order uh, for growth hormone to be secreted for you know regularly for tissue repair, um, you are going to need to have your blood insulin levels and your blood glucose levels to be relatively low. So one of the one of the things that you might think about or consider if you're wanting to improve your growth hormone is to think about uh, time restricted eating. So maybe two to four hours before going to sleep to cut off your eating window so that you can enable that growth hormone um, release. Um, I mentioned that um, we have different, we have a different pulsatile uh, response, men and women, but particularly with exercise, um, there is a way there's, uh, this is maybe one of the few advantages I think, uh, in terms of our physiology that we have over our male counterparts. Um, but when we are engaging in exercise and specifically when I say exercise, I'm talking about resistance training. It can also be endurance training as well. But when we're talking about like intense, shorter exercise, like short bursts of, um, activity, women will produce peak levels of growth hormone twice as quickly as our men do. So we will reach our peak growth hormone uh, secretion at about 30 minutes uh, after starting our exercise. And for men, that is, it's about double uh, that time. So they will reach their peak at about 60 minutes after exercise. And so I love that because I think that that is such a, um, I mean, such an advantage. First of all, it's so time efficient and I'm all about efficiencies, right? I love that. So in terms of how you can begin to, if you, you know, if you've done uh, labs and let's say you've done your cardiometabolic profiles and you're starting to see a worsening, uh, maybe you've taken your IGF-1 and, um, um, you know, there, there might be an indication that that IGF one level is low. And of course this is dependent on your age, but as a general rule, I like women to be somewhere between, you know, 275, um, uh, uh, nanograms per milliliter up to 400, um, nanograms per milliliter. But you can, you can begin to fix 
uh, your growth hormone naturally through the things that are going on in your life. So the first thing, uh, probably no surprise to you that I'm going to say this, but, uh, lifting weights, right. And lifting heavy weights. Do not be afraid of lifting heavy. Now I mentioned it can also be endurance training. Um, but your endurance training and, and weight training when it, when we're thinking about growth hormones specifically should shouldn't really be longer than about 75 minutes. Now, if you remember with women, we reach our peak secretion of growth hormone at about 30 minutes. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been shown just like over and over again, that if you exercise for too long, whether it's weights or endurance exercise, then your cortisol levels are going to start creeping up. And if they go high enough, then they're going to start to inhibit both testosterone and, uh, they're going to start to drive down, um, growth hormone. So, lift the weights, do the endurance stuff, but don't do it like 60 to 75 minutes, I think is a more than appropriate amount of time for you to get an appropriate training session in. Um, and this is why I say this with love, but all my marathoners, like I, I would always notice that my, like my ultra marathoning, like my patients who are there, you know, my ultra marathon patients, they always look like they were about to die. Like they had, you know, no muscle mass. They had, you know, a lot of joint pain, you know, of course. And that's a a lot of that is like wear and tear. Um, but we, we really do want to try. And when we're thinking about exercise, of course, it's an acute stressor. Of course, we're going to see a ramp up of inflammation immediately post-exercise, but you don't want it to be like that all the time. The other thing that's, um, uh, that I think is an important consideration for improving growth hormone is, um, is, or some of the cardiometabolic issues that we were talking about, like glucose levels, fasting, uh, insulin, fasting, glucose, fasting, insulin levels, you know, systemic inflammation is to consider a protocol like the Estima diet, which is a female centric ketogenic diet that has two main phases to it, right? We have one, which is a therapeutic intervention of ketosis, where we are inducing metabolic flexibility and helping your body's endogenous production of ketones. And then phase two is of course cycling the keto with higher bouts of protein and carbohydrates. And of course, when you eat more protein, you can also raise IGF-1. If you remember, IGF-1 is the proxy for growth hormone when IGF-1 goes up, you can infer that growth hormone is going up and eating protein helps to drive up IGF-1 and particularly proteins, um, from, uh, from animals. Um, so this means meat. Um, so I know that that's not the best news for my vegetarians and for my vegans, but it's the methionine rich, um, uh, protein that helps to drive up IGF-1. It also helps to drive up testosterone uh, as well. And this is per- for my for my perimenopausal and my menopausal women. This is your primary objective: is keeping your bone density heavy and uh, and to keep your mu- and to as much as you can improving your lean muscle mass, which includes your bones and your muscles, and of course your muscle mass in and of itself. So I'm a big fan of proteins like steak, uh, chicken, eggs. Uh, you know, you might also consider fish. Um, I, um, I don't make fish that often. Um, I do, I do know how to make salmon and halibut. Um, but, uh, the ones that you should consider, uh, are the smash fish. So these are, let me see if I can remember the acronym. So it's sardines, uh, mackerel, uh, anchovies, 
uh, salmon and, uh, and herring. So the smash fish are really, really high in omega-3s, which of course are going to also help to lower that systemic inflammation. Um, the other thing that you can do in terms of protein is to consume whey protein. Um, so lots of really great whey p- proteins um, on the market. There's a couple that I uh, certainly use and prefer. Um, but yeah, it's, it's um, and this is, this is where I, I want to be really delicate because I always want to respect you know, the choices that you make, but I'm, I'm just kind of reporting on the data here. So we really want to be eating methionine rich, like animal proteins. And of course, as much as you can ethically raised from a local farmer, regenerative agriculture, this is the way that we're going to help solve, you know, the topsoil issue and, um, and some of the climate change that we're seeing, but separate podcast. All right. Other things you can consider is fasting. Uh, you know how I love, I love to fast. So uh, intermittent fasting has been shown to robustly activate and increase growth hormone. Um, I do think that uh, there are too many women uh, who are really, really dedicated to their health, who aggressively fast more than they should. So they will fast the same way every day, like 16, eight every day, 24 every day. I really like to relax that for women. So I like to start if you've never fasted before. And even for someone like myself, who's been fasting for years now, um, I love a 12, 12, um, or a 10, 14. Like those are my most common, personally, those are the most common fasts that I typically engage in. It modulates through my menstrual cycle. Um, and there's, I've developed a protocol in terms of how you can fast through your menstrual cycle and in perimenopause and in menopause. I go into detail in my book, The Betty Body. You'll find, you know, a clickable link in the show notes for, for that. And of course, if you want to go longer, um, in my hormone membership program, Hello Betty uh, headquarters, we affectionately call HBHQ, um, there are protocols there to do 24-hour fasts, um, et cetera. And fasting is actually, you know, 24-hour fasting in women, uh, we've seen like a thousand X increase in, um, in growth hormone. So really, really profound way to do it. Couple other things you might consider, of course, uh, heat. Um, if you have access to a sauna, uh, sauna bathing, uh, be it you know the traditional uh, you know heat sauna or infrared sauna, can raise growth hormone. Um, recognizing that not everybody has uh, access to a sauna. You can also just soak in a piping hot bath uh, as hot as you can handle it uh, to increase your core body temperature. And this actually comes back to the exercise a little bit is like if you're able to, uh, you know, maybe even take a hot shower in the morning or take a, a, you know, call it a 20 uh, minute sauna prior to exercising, this is also going to synergistically amplify your growth hormone um, um, secretion. So you can kind of see here that if you are training, let's say, you know, three, four times, um, you know, three, four times a, a week that now you are going to be on a constant basis, increasing your growth hormone. And if you pair that with some of the nutritional considerations that we were talking about, a female centric ketogenic diet, like I talk about in the Betty body fasting in a female centric way, um, increasing your consumption of, uh, animal proteins, or if animal proteins aren't your thing, then, you know, fish, uh, whey protein, uh, powder, these things can all directionally improve the growth 
uh, growth hormone secretion that you have, thereby helping with things like, you know, lean muscle mass and lean body mass. So like bone density, organ density, muscle mass, your moods, um, the, the tightness of your skin, um, better sleep, uh, of course, joints that don't creak and ache all the time. And so I hope that you, I hope that you found this, uh, little geeky magic on, uh, on growth hormone, uh, useful, and hopefully you will listen to this and pair it with the, um, uh, with the geeky magic on the thyroid, because these two systems are so overlapping. We really do need to be considering for optimal function, female function. We want to be thinking about what are the ways that we can amplify growth hormone and amplify thyroid hormone. And truth be told, I never really used to look at growth hormone. I used to run like panels here and there and everywhere on all the other things, except for IGF one. And, um, this is probably where I have like most shifted my opinion over the years. I used to think that IGF-1 had to stay as low as possible forever um, without really recognizing um, the impact um, that it, uh, or the significance of growth hormone and its relationship to it. So this is something that I have more recently started to adopt and look at IGF-1 in terms of uh, the private clients that I, that I work with. Um, and, uh, you know, whenever I have a, you know, consultation with someone, we're always sort of looking at, looking at some of these parameters. So I hope that you found this uh, useful. Um, I have started uh, recording uh, the video of these Geeky Magics as well. So you will be able to find them on YouTube, uh, but you will always be able to find these if you are listening to this uh, in, on audio, you will always be able to find it exactly where you're listening to it now, uh, which is, uh, you know, on Apple or Spotify or Google podcast, wherever you're listening to. Uh, but if you, if you want to see, um, how animated I am when I talk, uh, you'll be able to see that on, uh, on YouTube. So hope that you found this, uh, useful and I bid you adieu and I will see you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.